I am a paramedic in Alaska. There was one call I will never forget. Written by Colt Leisure. I am an advanced emergency medical technician in the southwest region of Alaska. I've been on the job for six years. The majority of our dispatches varied. Many of them involved alcohol abuse, domestic violence, injuries in the wild, or all of the above. Our staffing on the night of the most shocking incident I have ever responded to was small. The only other EMTs in the ambulance with me were Daniel Fontre and Liam Tamela. Liam drove us past a gas station in a vacant motel as a storm came in. We had left the scene of a patient who suffered a major concussion in a bar brawl. He refused to go to the hospital, despite our repeated warnings of how high risk he was for a brain bleed. A call came from dispatch around midnight. As we lifted our radios closer to our ears, we soon found it was a notification of a body found by the highway. Liam switched on the lights and the sirens and there was no traffic in sight. It was a never-ending and snaky road we traveled on. The scene was in a spot where the lane seemed to gain prominence and bend around a corner into darkness. Liam parked. I opened the back doors, stepped out, unhooked a stretcher, and pulled it towards me. I squeezed the handbrake before I extended the leg assembly and I took the cot off the ambulance. Liam got out of the driver's side and pointed upwards past the front of the engine. His expression indicated how something was about to attack us from the sky. Look, he said as the wind picked up speed and the rain drenched us even more. It was a frigid night and the moisture bit at our skin. There was a light pole which stood taller than most buildings in the county. It was also the only such fixture for at least a mile. A pallid man dangled from it in the obscurity. The silhouette of his form through the precipitation appeared to us. His shape came into view like a twisted game of shadow puppets. The individual who hung from the noose wore a trench coat and had a shaved head. One end of the rope was around the pole cap. His feet swayed like windflowers. How did he get up that far? I asked Daniel. After I saw him staring at the elevation with the same astonishment equal to mine. That's for the state troopers to hash out, he said. I knew he was right. Our training was not related to criminal investigation. We were not the ones to determine if there was involvement of foul play. Still, our observations and reports often did go to court. I knew from the moment I saw him that 
not be able to stop thinking about what could have transpired. It was time to focus on our part of what we could and couldn't do. There was very little we were allowed to, and we knew the rules. We cannot take any significant steps without a coroner. We cannot call a doctor to ask for advice until we were close enough to assess his morbidity level. We should get him down to see if he has blue legs, I said. I'll help with that when you find a way to get up there, Daniel said. Let's wait for law enforcement to cut him down. We can do an ultrasound to the heart or a forelead, assuming he still has a pulse. What do you think his chances are, though? Breaths. Chest compressions. Shock. I had ambitions of doing all three. But I knew deep down that our victim was not viable. Daniel radioed for a ladder truck. He tried to give his best estimate of the height they would have to try and reach upon arrival. And that's when I heard a growl in the distance. I looked up, and I could not believe what I saw. The hanged man reached up, gripped the rope, and tried to pull it off his neck. The veins on his forehead throbbed and his eyes bulged as he kicked nothingness beneath him in the rain. I wanted to scream advice at him, but I was unsure of what to say. I felt helpless as I watched him struggle in his miserable situation. We stared upwards at the spectacle. What this new sight informed me of was how he could not have been up there very long. The rope snapped and he fell in slow motion. He plummeted through the tempestuous night and hit the concrete, and a sickening splat filled the air. What shocked me most was not the noise. It was the visual of what exploded beneath him when he landed. It was not viscera or bone matter. No, what slid out from beneath his form were silver bullets, and many of them. The cases clattered on the street and rang out in the ether like loose change. We approached him. Despite how odd everything was, our training kicked in, and now we could at least go hands-on. Liam brought the auxiliary defibrillator unit. Daniel pushed a gurney towards the man, and as we approached, I saw some kind of furry object come out of the man's mouth. For a second, I thought it must have been a rabbit or even a fox who had found its way near the man's face. We stopped together and stared as the man's head seemed to tilt, as though he tried to make eye contact. How is he even conscious? I thought. His mouth widened. A wolf's head burst out between his sets of teeth. The skull of the predatory animal was very much alive. The man's face contorted as the beast escaped past a desiccated flap of what his tongue used to be. The skin between his eyes ripped apart 
and the creature escaped soaked in gore. It breathed heavy. Its form was bigger than any kind of its species I had ever seen before as it rested on its haunches. Its lips trembled around its sharp, ivory-colored fangs, and it leaped towards us. Say safety! Daniel shouted as he ran back towards the ambulance, and we sprinted along with him. I screamed into my radio for law enforcement to arrive as soon as possible, and the wolf reached us before we could spring back into the safety of the vehicle. The wolf bit on Daniel's hamstring, and he howled in blood-curdling agony. He lifted his free leg and kicked the animal in the mouth. Although this maneuver did not seem to cause any damage, it did make the thing take a few steps back. The animal jumped into the gurney and tore into the fabric of the bedding. White padding, wheels, racks, and skids flew everywhere on the road as it destroyed the cot in a matter of seconds. I grabbed Daniel by the arms and threw him into the ambulance as we locked the doors. What the fuck is that thing? Daniel said as he reached down and tried to stop the bleeding with his hand. What kind of a wolf lives inside of a human being? He reached into one of the cupboards and pulled out some gear. He applied his own tourniquet before either one of us had the chance to. We could hear clawing on the sides of the walls. It was a noise comparable to a set of knives scraping against a metal barrier. It was consistent in its rapid pace. Silence soon devoured us before we heard something on the roof. Liam gripped a set of trauma shears as though he was ready to stab whatever made its way inside. I hoped in silence that its strength and ferocity was not that great. Then out of nowhere, a loud pounding reverberated above us. The screech of tires filled the outside, and gunshots rang out. The roof above us became dented with claw marks. Minutes which felt like hours transpired before we opened the doors and officers stood there with their guns drawn. We put our hands up and waited to recount our tale. The wolf had escaped into the forest after bullets had entered its body and according to the trooper it did not lose any of its speed. The trail of carmine and paw prints were visible and led to the deepest parts of the misted woodland. They said they would search for it, but nothing would ever get found. I stared at the luminosity of the full moon and I contemplated how I was going to share the story with the authorities. We did tell them exactly what we saw. They had the professional courtesy not to laugh at us. We knew they were going to brush over our descriptions and their reports. Well, let me tell you a little something about me. 
Well, it's Saturday night, I need to blow off some steam. Years later, Daniel, Liam, and I sat in a bar called Montgomery's. I enjoyed a whiskey club with a lime and we watched a boxing match on one of the plasma screens before Liam spoke up. You remember the hanged man? It was odd to hear the words come out of his mouth. The three of us had agreed not to talk about it in public places. Of course. <laughs> I said in a whisper after I looked around the place. The establishment was quiet that night. Wind and frost whipped at the windows. Heard there's a government facility only a few miles away in the pines there, Liam said. He took a long swig of ale. Where did you get that account from? I asked. A buddy of mine who likes to go hiking got asked to leave by a group of men in military gear. He said they pointed guns at him, threatened him with arrest, and asked how much he saw or where he had gone. They detained him for a period of time. They finally let him go, but... They made it clear that if he ever returned, they wouldn't be so kind. They gave him the stern warning in those exact words. How did he get in there? I asked. He said he crawled through a drain pipe the size of a hotel room. Sitting in a cluster of spiny and sharp tree limbs. He ended up in a desolate plain surrounded with colorless buildings. He said there did not seem to be any life there. He got closer to the front entrance of one and was able to peer on inside. Interior had laboratories and wolves kept in cages. It looked downtrodden and vicious. He said there was a man in business casual attire with tablets typing things up. He said they had glass vials and syringes of sorts in their pockets. Makes you wonder if there's some sort of... Liam trailed off and grew quiet. What? I asked. I don't know. You, you ever heard of genetic manipulation? Modifications and what they can do with the organism's DNA. How they can change genomes now. I mean, we only know what they're willing to tell us, but it's likely that they're doing things that no one knows about. I looked over at Daniel to see his reaction. He maintained a stony face. Liam was never the type to get conspiratorial about anything. Neither were we. This may have been the exception. We didn't have any counter-arguments to what his friend saw, and it did not seem any more or less sane than what we were witnesses of. We walked out of the bar that night with the hopes that we would never hear anything more about the area or the hanging. As I went to my truck, I could hear a howl in the distance. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. My roommate has been leaving our house at 7.06 p.m. every day 
I found out why. Written by Colt Leisure. Melissa was a natural fit when she moved into the house two years ago. She started out as the perfect roommate. The first day we met was when she came to check out the house. You are the only guy searching for a renter whose ad wasn't creepy, she said. This commentary left me saddened. I had no doubt she was telling the truth. My already jaded opinion on my gender strengthened in its contempt. After she paid the first month's rent, I realized how I was lucky to have found her. Time lent her credibility as a person who could help me with my mortgage. She minded her own business and expected privacy, which I was happy to give. She lived on the second story of the house, and I resided in the master bedroom on the ground level. I am a paralegal, and I wanted nothing more than quietness at home to decompress from my exhaustive job duties. She was a remote worker and wanted the same. Neither one of us were particularly social, so unexpected guesses were not really a problem. We both respected the consistent willingness to give each other space. She listened to podcasts and painted when she was not clocked in. I read mystery novels and enjoyed the occasional whiskey. We rarely ever spent time socializing with one another. We had nothing against each other, but our commonalities were scarce. Whenever I asked her a question about her past, she responded with a one-word answer or shrugged it off. I didn't think of this as rudeness so much as pure disinterest, so I let it go. One evening, I was washing the dishes after I cooked a meal and I saw her leave the house. It was 7.06 p.m. She walked down the porch steps and into the street before she disappeared around the corner. As I dried my plate, I saw a police car pass the house, followed by a woman in a dark robe. She stopped and stared at me for several minutes, and I closed the blinds when her stare did not avert. It took me a few weeks to catch on to the pattern. Melissa would leave the house every single evening at 7.06 p.m., Even if it was overcast, foggy, raining, or snowing, she would head out. I wrote it off at first as nothing more than her wanting to get a late workout in. I usually went to bed around 10 o'clock and fell asleep by 11. But it occurred to me one night how I never saw her return. She would always be there to clock in at work on time the next day though so I tried not to focus on it. And then, the inquisitiveness started. This is a trait of mine that I'm not proud of. My mind still raced, despite my intellect telling me not to give in to my baser tendencies. Was she a party-goer? She was in the right age range to be part of that culture. But she never smelled of alcohol, as far as I could tell. 
Could she have fallen into an all-consuming drug addiction? She was masterful at hiding it, if so. The dysfunctional neighborhood I grew up in made me adept at spotting such things. Don't worry, I told myself. She's paying her end. Everything else is none of your business. But that all changed when she knocked on my door. It was a lazy Sunday at two in the afternoon. I answered and saw Melissa. Her eyes seemed buggy and she was distraught. Is something wrong? I have to tell you something, she said. Can I come in or can we sit at the table? We went to the living room as I tried to read her body language. The last thing I wanted to do was have her be upset at me in some way. Once we were both seated at the couch, she broke the news to me. I'm pregnant, she said. I thought I should tell you. I don't want you alarmed if I start having morning sickness or some kind of complications. Well, I said with a smile, I'll be. Congratulations. She waved off the pleasantry with a solemn face. The fathers might come around, she said before she went upstairs. They won't be here long when they do. I nodded. The plural wording caught me off guard. I was leery of questioning her further based on her already standoffish demeanor. A few months after that conversation... I had been asleep before a loud thud awoke me. I hopped out of bed and grabbed an aluminum baseball bat beneath the bed before I moved out into the hallway. I went back in, secured the bedroom door, retrieved my phone, and checked the CCTV footage on my home security app. Everything on the screen appeared to be normal. Nothing but a mosquito was in front of the camera. However, one of the motion sensors on the front of the property released an alarm. For some unknown reason, it must have malfunctioned and did not register until I checked it. I rewinded the footage and I found Melissa had entered through the front door a minute before. Her physical gait seemed a bit unusual in their surveillance recording. A limp had befallen her. She was also wearing a white dress I did not recall her wearing when she left the house earlier. To the main foyer and I found her on the floor. Her dress looked disheveled and had stains of charcoal on it. Crisscrossing amber patterns were laying on the midsection of the garment. I thought this was a sign of injury. Still, the design was deliberate and indicated how either she or someone else had drawn it. I approached her with the bat resting on my shoulder. Melissa? 
I asked. She did not respond. I looked at her and noticed something unusual. Her belly puffed out in a hideous way. The fabric of her clothing was so thin, I could see the purplish and black veins through it. I turned around to call 911 with a medical emergency, whose symptoms I was still unclear on, and she leaped up. The way she sprung to her feet seemed abnormal in its speed and ferocity. She was in attack mode, and I instinctively took a few steps back to the staircase. And she faced me, reared her head back, got down on her knees, and vomited. The stench was acrid, it crossed between rotted meat and sulfur. I gagged. She got to her feet again and ran at me. I've never committed an act of violence against a woman, and I was not eager to do so that night but I swung the baseball bat at her legs. I wanted to at least incapacitate her to get to my room and call for help. The end of the blunt object hit her kneecaps and the vibration in the metal pinged and shook in my hands. It did not even bother her. Her hands wrapped around my throat and she threw me to the ground. The overwhelming smell of fetid and sour puke wafted over me as saliva strands fell from her mouth. She unleashed a shriek as I kicked her off of me, moved to my side, and hoisted myself up. I moved into the kitchen, pulled out one of the silverware drawers and flung it at her. She swatted it down, and the utensils clattered everywhere. And she grabbed one of the steak knives and advanced towards me. I lifted a fire extinguisher kept by the fridge and sent a cloud of foam in her eyes. With her blinded and screaming in frustration, I ran out of the house. I sprinted to my vehicle, and I realized that my car keys were still on my nightstand in my room. I decided to hurry down the street and knocked on a neighbor's door, hoping that they didn't think I was an intruder. When I begged the responding homeowner to call the police, they did not hesitate to do so. But unfortunately, Melissa was never found. They searched the area, checked the local hospitals, and did a canvas of our neighborhoods. They even checked her mobile phone number to see if they could track her down that way. But her cell phone was never recovered. I did call the deputy who responded to the situation that night to try to get follow-ups. This was not even to check on Melissa, but to try to decipher why everything had happened. And I was usually met with empty administrative rhetoric. And I learned over time to stop engaging further with him. Since that incident transpired years ago, I have a new roommate named Sarah. She became an addition to the household only several months after that event. I worried gossipers would spread misinformation, 
because of course this would prevent people from sharing the space with me. The story didn't catch on to local news outlets, which worked out in my benefit. I've always valued my privacy and wanted to put the strange assortment of dealings behind me. Sarah was far different from Melissa. She was outgoing and tried to organize social events in the house. These included hangouts with people from the office in the wake of new promotions. I was not always comfortable with these things as a natural introvert, but it never worked out in a bad way though. I was generally grateful to meet new people. One night, Sarah walked in from the rain, folded her umbrella and hung up her coat. I met a group of strangers this evening on the way home from work, she said. Where? I asked. At the cemetery. Went there to visit a dead friend. I looked up for my paperback and stared at her. They called themselves the Temple of the House of Tonic, she said. They were all dressed in robes. Their outfits had cherry red threads woven throughout the fronts. There were around six of them and they stated how they meet at 7.30pm every day, no matter the weather. And it's required that their members walk to their ceremonies. Using modern technology taints their rituals. And they pray to a god that gives them whatever they wish for, whether it's money, power, sex. And it seems kind of outlandish, but here's the thing that's interested me. They said they have a lodging where famous people who use their spells to gain success in life meet. And this happens weekly. They went on to state how they have their own midwives and other important professions. And they value the idea of starting their own family, since that is how they see each other. They definitely have a strong sense of community. Seems like they're out of their minds to me, I said. And her gaze shifted. I would have sworn she looked at me with disappointment. She went upstairs and slammed the door. It was the first time I had ever seen her upset at me. Sarah has left the house at 7.06 p.m. every evening since then. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please consider becoming a member of my Patreon page, where you can have access to over 200 episodes with no ads, no promo, no bullshit. Just scary stories which you can download or listen to through an exclusive podcast feed. You will have access to the entire Scarecast catalog, my bedtime story collection, and over 40 episodes never before released on the podcast. You can join today by visiting patreon.com slash the scarecast. All information will be posted in the description of this episode. Also, follow my Instagram at the scarecast for podcast updates. As always, be safe out there and until next time.